0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by journalist Michelle Seesaw, who's going to talk to us about her new article, The Curious Case of Gina Adams, which was recently published in McLean's
1: magazine. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Hi, Christina. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm so glad you're here and that we get to talk about your article. Before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, I am a freelance journalist from Vancouver in Canada, Um, and until February, I worked in communications at the uh, Emily Carr University of Art and Design, which is a small art and design university here in Vancouver. Um, And I'm also a member of the Muskeg Lake Cree Nation, which is based in Treaty 6 territory in Saskatchewan, Uh, but I was born and raised in Vancouver.
0: I wonder if you could take us back to your own journey through higher ed. What school did you choose and what was your experience like there?
1: I went to the University of Victoria, which is a university on Vancouver Island. Listeners outside of Canada often think Vancouver is on Vancouver Island, but it's not. They're separated by a body of water. And uh, at the University of Victoria, I studied anthropology Less because I thought I could be an anthropologist and more because I took a bunch of courses in different things that I was interested in for the first couple of years. And then at some point I realized I had to graduate and uh, looked at all my credits and realized I had the closest thing to a major in anthropology. Um, I think that's not an uncommon journey for people who follow their interests and then <laughs> realize at some point they can't afford to stay in school forever. Um and while I was at UVic, I was really involved in a lot of student opportunities there. I would say that was the best thing about my university experience. Uh, one of them was a new program developed for Indigenous students, which was designed to increase um, student graduation rates. So Indigenous students in the U.S., you would probably say Native students, are uh, less likely to graduate than non-Indigenous students for a couple of reasons. Um so racism and colonialism in the classroom is one, but also many of these students come from communities um, to go to university and arriving at university is a bit of a culture shock or they don't have community support. There's a whole bunch of reasons. And so I was really involved in that program I, as both a peer mentor and someone who attended a lot of activities for Indigenous students. I found it really valuable. Um I also decided while I was in university that I wanted to go to grad school, partly because I felt like I wasn't really ready to get a job when I graduated. <laughs> so I, I had the opportunity to do some research um, as a research assistant for a couple of professors and working on a couple of projects as a work study student, which was really cool. And after I graduated, I ended up applying to a master of public health program at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. Uh, and I was really interested in sort of community health and social understandings of health. So, how communities make sense of illness and the ways that they interact with the healthcare system. I was really interested in um, health and wellness in Indigenous communities. And I. Worked after I graduated in research and health communication for a few years before moving into general communication roles. Um, and I liked working in a university. I always liked being around students. And I found it really exciting to be in a place where research was happening and where so many people had these big ideas for how to change the world or how to, you know, shape their field in exciting ways. Um, so I ended up back in university when I started working at Emily Carr in 2018. And that's kind of the full, the full picture of my academic journey.
0: And you share some of that with us in the article. And some of your undergrad experience starts influencing your impetus for writing the article in some ways. When you were part of that program for Indigenous students, you talk about feeling like an imposter and you start talking about in the article about wishing you'd known more about your grandmother before it was too late. Do you want to talk about how some of that, um, research that you did to uncover the curious case of Gina Adams was tied to your own experience of
1: uncovering more about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I started university in 2004, I, there wasn't a lot of uh, sort of programs and universities for Indigenous students. The one I, I participated in at UVic was pretty new and, um, and kind of a, a really comprehensive and thoughtful program that didn't exist in a lot of places. And for me, it was my first experience of being around a lot of other Indigenous Students and uh, staff from different backgrounds, so different communities, different nations across Canada. People who, like me, had been raised in urban areas, and I I had the opportunity in that program to participate in cultural activities and educational activities that really helped me feel more connected to my Indigenous identity. Which, you know, growing up as someone who didn't look Indigenous. I, I often felt like I had to explain it or justify it to people. Um, and I, you know, I was sometimes embarrassed or nervous to tell people that I was Indigenous, because I often got a lot of questions in response that I didn't know how to answer that made me uncomfortable. So people would ask me things like, do you pay taxes? Or do you get everything for free from the government, or they would tell me about an experience they had with a native person that made them uncomfortable and want me to make them feel better about it. Um, and so it was just, it was something I didn't feel like I knew how to navigate. Um, you know, I i grew up with my grandmother, who was born at Muskeg Lake, and uh, and she was a big part of my childhood, but I wasn't really connected to my community that way. And in university, I, I started to realize that you know those community connections can be created you can repair them through learning and through engaging through building relationships it made me realize that that wasn't something that was lost to me i could start to build it for myself and by the time i started working at emily carr in 2018 a lot had changed in the landscape of uh indigenous student support in canadian universities So there were a lot more programs. There were a lot more um, supports in place, partly because in 2015, a big report was released in Canada by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that made specific recommendations to all levels of government for how to close the gap between Indigenous Canadians and non-Indigenous Canadians. And universities... We're taking on some of that work by trying to increase Indigenous representation, things like graduation rates and representation of Indigenous faculty. So it was a really, it was an important topic and also kind of a, I don't want to call it a trend, but it really felt like a lot of universities were in competition with each other to hire Indigenous faculty quickly or to, you know, to sort of champion their, own efforts uh, to increase student representation. But at the time I was I was really excited by it because it hadn't existed when I was a student. You know, there, the mainstreaming of indigenous student success and support was a really positive change. And I really understood as a staff member at Emily Carr what it was like for indigenous students who didn't have that because it wasn't something that was a part of my high school experience or my first year of university. And I really know how important it is for Indigenous students to have the space to make those connections and to feel supported in engaging with their culture, reflecting their culture and their work. Because for a lot of them, like for me, it's their first opportunity to be taught by an Indigenous person, to be in a diverse group of Indigenous peers, um, and to reclaim that part of their identity and their history. I think it's a really important space for them.
0: And so the cluster hire that happened at Emily Carr while you were working there was something that should have been really exciting. And it was something that as a communications um, officer, you were asked to do some of the publicity for. How did it come to your attention that one of the people in this cluster hire was not who she said she was?
1: Well, it's... Uh... I mean, initially, it was very exciting, as you said, because, you know, Emily Carr announced that they intended to hire five Indigenous faculty, which is a big deal at a school that only had 70 full-time faculty at the time of the hire. And, you know, to explain my role a little bit as a communications person, because I feel like communications roles are important at every university, but not something that people necessarily know much about, um... We're responsible for sort of all the public-facing announcements about the university, as well as communicating information to the university community. So emails to students and faculty about things that are happening, things that impact their experience, important information that they need. Um, and so it's an interesting role because you get to think both about the public-facing side of the university's work and what people understand of it, what you want them to know, as well as what the community needs to know, what they think is important. Um, And, you know, within Emily Carr, there was a lot of excitement about this cluster hire, particularly from Indigenous faculty and students. And externally, it also was something that, you know, made Emily Carr look, oh my gosh, sorry. My phone started ringing there. (laughs) Um. It was something that made Emily Carr look good because it, uh, you know, it, it signaled that we were taking this commitment to Indigenous people seriously, that we were putting resources behind it. And the cluster hire happened in 2019. I was actually off on maternity leave when the new faculty started. And when I came back to work in 2020, um, there were four new Indigenous faculty in place, including Gina Adams. At the time, there were no concerns about her work. Uh, I understand she was really well liked by her students and her peers. But in early 2021, um, an interesting thing kept happening in Canadian universities, which is that uh, allegations kept surfacing about Indigenous faculty um, and Indigenous public figures in general. So. One really notable story that made headlines was Michelle Latimer, who is a filmmaker um, and a director of a TV show that was quite popular here called Trickster. And there were allegations made that she was not actually from or connected to the community that she had claimed. Uh, And another two cases occurred at universities near Emily Carr early in the spring of 2021, uh, one at Simon Fraser University and one at the University of British Columbia. And it was just, it was a really strange time. It just felt like there were a lot of these cases popping up where people would say, you know, this person was hired in part because they represent the indigenous community and they have expertise that the university is looking for because they recognize that there is not a lot of indigenous people um, within their institution. And, and yet they might not be who they say they are. So that was kind of the, the context at the time. There was this interesting atmosphere um, of everybody wondering, like, which university was going to deal with this next. And then in March 2021, uh, this anonymous Twitter account called No More Red Face posted a thread about Gina Adams. And anonymous Twitter accounts, I would like to say, are not the ideal mechanism for talking about identity or race shifting or um, anything of this sort. You know, it's not, it's not ideal to be hashing these topics out online through an anonymous account. But um, the account did provide a lot of details in this thread. So Gina Adams had a very specific story about her indigenous identity, which is that she said her grandfather was born on the White Earth Reserve in Minnesota, and that he had attended the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, which was one of the largest Indian boarding schools in the US. And and so that that trauma had really shaped him and had shaped her art practice. And that as a result of that trauma, he had really hidden his indigenous identity for most of his life. and this Twitter thread said, in fact, her grandfather was not from that reserve, that he had been born in Massachusetts to white parents. He had never attended a residential school. Um, she had no connections to that community. There was no proof of them. it was It was a pretty shocking and detailed thread. And immediately people started asking questions about it. Um, you know, as a member of the communications team, I received emails from the public, from people, you know, who had graduated from Emily Carr, who had questions from people who'd just seen the Twitter thread and were concerned on social media. People were tagging Emily Carr and asking if anyone had looked into this. Um, It was a really, it was a really uh, kind of alarming revelation because if it was true, it was quite serious. And, Um, you know, even if it wasn't true, it it was, you know, upsetting to think that this was an accusation being leveled at one of our faculty. And so everyone within the university took it really seriously. But as I'm sure you're aware, you know, universities can't really always be very forthcoming with the public because you have to consider employee privacy. Um, You have to, you know, you can't make statements to the public um, that concern Personnel files or details, so there was nothing that the university was willing to say initially. Um, but as an Indigenous staff member and somebody who read the the tweets, I had a lot of questions. Um, I thought that the accusations were detailed and specific enough that we should take them seriously, and that you know we shouldn't take the word of an anonymous account necessarily, but that if there was any possibility, this was true. Um, then we should be asking Gina Adams to, you know, provide something to the university, a letter from her community, some kind of support for her story to validate it because she had come from a community that, you know, no other indigenous people at Emily Carr was, were from Um, there's lots of different nations. There's lots of different indigenous communities as a Cree person. I don't know very much about, you know, the Ojibwe community that she said she was from. And so it's not necessarily possible for all Indigenous people to immediately understand each other's cultures or backgrounds. And so the only way kind of to understand whether the story was true was to ask Gina herself. And um, what what I found really interesting was, you know, when I saw these allegations surface in March, I assumed that it would be quick one way or the other to sort this out. Either there would be some proof to disprove the allegations or she wouldn't be able to explain them. And then, you know, there would have to be some kind of consequence because she had been hired specifically as part of a restricted search for Indigenous candidates, which meant that her Indigenous identity was pretty central to her being hired. It wasn't kind of a nice to have. It was the basis of the hiring And the interesting thing is that for a long time, you know, from March 2021, when the allegations were published until my story came out uh, last month in September, nothing really happened. There was no statement from the university. Everything just kind of settled down quietly. And that was really what I wanted to write about was this long period of ambiguity where there was no action taken and the response from the institution was silence. How did that feel? I think to me, it felt mostly disappointing and confusing um, because, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself that naive, but I i really felt like the spirit of the hire was about truth and reconciliation, about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And to me, it seemed so critical to understand the truth and i I was really disappointed, I think that the university seemed less interested in the truth and more interested in the possible repercussions you know to the public reputation to things like enrollment if these allegations were true. They didn't seem to want to know. And I think that sometimes at the senior levels of universities, it's possible to be a bit insulated from the discussions that are happening, but I saw so many people in the indigenous community who were troubled by this, you know, who were wondering why nothing had been done, why nothing had been said. And it felt like an abdication of duty and responsibility to these indigenous communities who the university said that they wanted to support, that they wanted to be in good relations with, that they, you know, faced with the possibility of making a mistake, they couldn't confront that. And as someone whose job it was to manage the public r- reputation of the university, I had real, um, I had real concerns about whether my work was ethical at that point. Like if by helping to polish the reputation of the university through these public communications. I was also helping to obscure really troubling matter that we were trying as hard as we could to avoid.
0: In the article, you talk about how universities are not set up to verify identity. And you mentioned earlier in the conversation that vast number of nations that can be represented by the idea of a cluster hire that you can't expect one person in the cluster hire to be in charge of verifying the indigeneity of another person in the cluster hire and the university doesn't have any real system for understanding how any of this works. You talk about aspects of that in the article do you want to explain some of that to listeners? We have listeners in different parts of the world who may not um, have experience with this conversation.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, there's a couple things in there. So I'll talk maybe about how Indigenous identity was treated in the hiring process, because I think that's an important piece. Um, you know, when when universities we're doing a lot of this cluster hiring where they were trying to hire a bunch of indigenous faculty members all at once. They were relying on self-identification. So that meant that applicants would explain their indigenous identity. They could indicate it, you know, in writing, they could tell a story, they would mark it on their application. But they weren't required to provide any kind of proof. And there is a good reason for that, which is that you know, proving one's identity is is tricky business. So, some people in Canada, including myself, have something called a status card, which is a piece of federal government ID that uh, confirms that you're. Uh, Your identity meets the definition of an Indigenous person under a piece of legislation called the Indian Act. It's a very bureaucratic explanation because it's a very bureaucratic process. Um, Individual nations like my nation, Muskeg Lake, they don't get to determine who gets a status card. That's determined by the federal government, and the federal government uses blood quantum. You have to apply with your family tree, and you have to have a certain number of relatives who were indigenous in order to qualify so understandably a lot of indigenous people take uh you know they take issue with that because there are people who you know can't prove who all of their relatives were they're missing records they might be from different nations um They might've been adopted. You know, many, many indigenous children were taken from their homes and communities through residential schools and through something that's called in Canada, the 60 scoop, where as residential schools began to close, a lot of indigenous children were taken into foster care and adopted into white families. Similar things happened in the United States. So a lot of indigenous people don't have that kind of paperwork and they do have deep community connections. They know who their family are, but they can't prove it. Other people don't like the idea of the federal government regulating their identity, and they don't want to get a status card. So all that is to say, Indigenous people have different ways of demonstrating their identity. And none of those are things that universities as institutions are necessarily familiar with. You know, they the people who are doing this hiring are not usually indigenous themselves because the problem that they're trying to fix is a lack of indigenous people. So there's, there's a knowledge gap. And I think that they're aware of that, but I don't think until these recurring cases of identity fraud began popping up, universities really realized what a liability that knowledge gap was. Um, and, Something else that I realized as the story was occurring was, as you said, that universities don't have a way to verify identity, even after questions have been raised. So universities are pretty bureaucratic institutions by nature, um, and they... They don't like to go off script, I would say. So it's, I think, quite hard for a university to make a decision in a novel situation where they don't have a precedent or they don't have a policy to follow. So in this case, they had already hired someone who said she was Indigenous, and there was no framework or path to follow to investigate or ask her to demonstrate her identity you know the the opportunity to do that seemed to have been during the hiring process and without that kind of structure without a a guideline or template to follow um they were really at a loss and I don't think that Emily Carr was the only university that was confused about how to handle this because every time a case like this has come up at a university it's it's really been handled um Quite awkwardly, I think. You know, the universities only really act when there's a significant amount of media pressure. In every case, a person who's been accused of identity fraud like this has resigned rather than been fired, because there's no precedent in place to fire someone for this kind of deception. Um, and I think I think it's important to call that out because. You know, if someone had been hired as an expert in their field on the basis of having a PhD or teaching experience, and it was found that they'd falsified those aspects of their CV, I think it would be pretty straightforward for a university to take action on that. And yet, you know, being Indigenous has become something universities are seeking out in applicants. They're hiring people because they bring cultural knowledge, because they bring an underrepresented background. And yet they don't know how to verify that, they don't know how to um, understand it. And so while they're hiring people for these positions, they don't actually know how to ensure that they're doing that work correctly. And I think that's a really, really big gap. It's a huge oversight. And it's something that universities are now trying to solve from the unfortunate position of realizing they've made this mistake. um, And they have to address it kind of in retrospect when You know, I think it's reasonable to say that a lot of other institutions in Canada probably have at least one Indigenous faculty member who is not actually Indigenous, and they're going to have to figure out how to address that.
0: In the states, um, a number, of, a large, large number of our our First Nations people do not have federal recognition, and I'm thinking of in California, which is where I'm from. Recently, there was a state um, initiative that the state colleges would have a um, tuition. I believe it's a tuition scholarship for our, uh, indigenous students in California, which sounds like a form of reparations, at least to white people and to the legislators, but something like half of the, uh, tribes in California are not federally recognized. And so those students automatically can't meet the paperwork qualification even though they could have, as you said, other verification from their community. But it doesn't meet the status of federal recognition. And there's been concern that some of the programs on campus, the social emotional cultural support programs the students will automatically feel they're turned away from those too even though those don't require federal recognition you can come into those programs you just can't have the free tuition it's
1: the colonialism can't fix
0: colonialism
1: yeah I think that's kind of the heart of the problem and I mean a lot of these are really thorny issues and I think it's you know, it's kind of an unfortunate, but in retrospect, unsus- unsurprising dilemma that this work is more complicated than, you know, setting up these programs for Indigenous students, for Native students, um, without maybe thinking through what their goals are or who they're trying to reach. And, you know, as you say, a lot of students don't have federal recognition. They're from tribes that aren't federally recognized And the same is true in Canada. And I personally would have a lot of concerns about programs that are limited only to people who can present federal ID to prove their Indigenous identity. I think that's a pretty flawed and limiting process. Um, And it is a tricky thing to solve. Um, You know, some of the people I spoke to for my story talked about the importance of having uh, maybe a national indigenous body that represented different communities who could help with verifying somebody's identity who maybe didn't have, um, ID or, you know, the community connections required to, to prove where they come from. Though I think that, um, things like letters from community members or ways of demonstrating your connection to the community you say you come from, those can have a lot more meaning than a piece of ID. Um, it's just more work, right? If somebody is showing a card, that's pretty straightforward an administration officer can just tick that off. Whereas, you know, understanding someone's relationships to a community is challenging. You have to understand where they say they come from, what they say their connections are, what the meaning is of those connections. It's a lot more work, it's a lot more learning. And I think one of the problems is institutions haven't done that learning in advance. They didn't see why it was important. And now they're in this bind um, where I think in order to do this work well, in a way that's just and equitable Um, it will require them to undertake that learning and to build those relationships with Indigenous communities so that they know a little bit more about what they're trying to do and what they're talking about when they talk about Indigenous identity. And I also want to say, you know, I think one of the biggest harms of people who commit this kind of identity theft who claim to be Indigenous when they aren't, the, the people who are harmed the most by that are those students and people who have a, you know, have a hard time explaining where they come from or whose relationships to their community have been fragmented through colonialism. I mean, I, it's awful to think of a student being afraid to access a resource that's meant for them because they are afraid people will think that they're lying or that they're a fraud or that they're not indigenous enough. I think that there's a huge number of indigenous people who are being alienated from the resources that they need and deserve because these incidents of identity fraud are casting a lot of suspicion in our communities right now. And I just, I think that's really, really upsetting. Um, and I I think it's important when considering identity fraud and considering these cases that we not start um, accusing everybody who doesn't have, you know, a perfect family tree or impeccable genealogy of deceit. I think that there need to be spaces where people who are finding their way back to their Indigenous identity can access those and start that journey for themselves. So, um, you know, there have to be pathways for people to follow if they're trying to connect to their identity and their community. And I think that's why you know, stories that focus on people in positions of power, whether that's academic power, like professors, people in leadership positions, um, you know, people in the arts like novelists or filmmakers who are receiving, in many cases, these large public grants and, and funds meant for Indigenous people. I do think we need a higher bar of scrutiny there if there are questions. But a big concern that I have is that people will see these cases of identity fraud and think, you know, everybody should start interrogating Indigenous people all the time, because that's, that's not a good practice. That's not something we should be doing, particularly with people who are just, you know, trying to figure out who they are. And I don't want everybody to think that this kind of vigilanteism is a good idea. I I was really cautious to even write the story, because I think there's a lot of ways that asking questions about someone's identity can be harmful and can perpetuate harmful practices. But I also think that the harm that identity fraud does is so great to Indigenous communities that it's important when there is a case that is, you know, someone in a position of power who, you know, in the case of the person I investigated, Emily Carr, Gina Adams, was working with Indigenous students and shaping public understandings of Indigenous identity and history through her work. I do think that those cases require accountability, but it's nuanced, right? You don't want everybody to go around demanding to see people's status cards or asking them for a family tree.
0: And your article is very nuanced. It talks about that your grandmother was in an Indigenous boarding school and how that affected the family and created a lot of silences when you felt like you were in a place in your life to start asking her about the silences. Her health was such that you couldn't ask anymore. There was language loss. And yet the case of Gina Adams, she appropriated those silences as a family history for herself. You walk the nuances of how important it is to have representation to know who's betraying that representation and to continue to advocate for more indigenous professors and students in the universities. You talk about how in Canada, First Nations are 5% of the population, but in higher ed, it's only 1% of the faculty. So it's extremely important if anybody is fraudulently in their position or has misrepresented their way to their position, that it's named because it's so few faculty.
1: Yeah, I think it's very important, partly because there's so few faculty and also because, you know, academic positions are really different from a lot of other kinds of professions um, in that, you know, especially when somebody has tenure, they're typically a member of that institution for life if they want to be. And, you know, I think in other fields, I'm not defending this, but I... (laughs) In other fields, I think if someone were to embarrass the company or the industry by misrepresenting a very important part of their history, it's a straightforward process to remove that person from the organization or to fire them. Um, it's much trickier in academia, and so even people who have very suspicious or you know known to be fraudulent stories can often stick around. For decades. Um, There is a case at Queen's University, which is in Ontario, of a faculty member who (laughs) has been teaching at the university, I think since the 1980s. He claims to be Cherokee, but the Cherokee Nation has confirmed that he has no ties to them. And he also claims to be a member of a First Nation that he helped to found in the 1980s. It's a corporation that he started. It's not a real First Nation. But that's the source of his indigenous identity, so to speak, and this is you know something that has been known for for a long time about him, and yet he's still teaching indigenous studies at Queens University because I think it's it's very tricky to um, to deal with a longtime faculty member like that, and so I think academia it's it's an especially critical issue. You know that's that's going to be something that. Um, these institutions have to deal with. And I mean, in regard to the the issue of residential schools or Indian boarding schools, you know, that's something I really wanted to include in the piece, because I think often when we talk about Indigenous identity fraud, there's this element of scandal. It's, you know, it's part of what catches people's attention. And obviously, most people understand that fraud is bad and that people shouldn't lie to obtain jobs. Uh, particularly when they're in positions of trust and authority. But I really wanted to underscore that it, it's genuinely quite painful for Indigenous people to see these traumatic family stories that are really common to a lot of us used by others for manipulative purposes. Um, so as I write in the story, my grandmother, like I would say most people in her generation went to a residential school. She went when she was five years old. It's called St. Michael's, uh, and it's in Duck Lake, Saskatchewan. There's actually a fantastic podcast, um, from Gimlet Media called, uh, the Search for St. Michael's, I think. Actually, now I'm blanking on the name, but it's by Connie Walker. And it's about her father's experience at St. Michael's. And I would really urge anyone who wants to learn more about the history of residential schools and Indian boarding schools to listen to it because it's very powerful. Um, but my grandmother attended that school when she was five. Uh, she was there until she was a teenager, you know, and her experience there was a lot better than many other people from her generation who experienced a ton of sexual abuse, they experienced physical abuse. Um, They were not allowed to speak their language. They were beaten for speaking their language. They, you know, many children tried to run away from these schools and died outside because they were so desperate to get home. It was really an enormous trauma. And in Canada, those schools only closed, the last one closed in 1996. So there are thousands of survivors of these schools who are still alive. It's a very recent part of our history. And I would say almost every Indigenous person I know has been touched by them in some way. It's a part of all of our families. And you know, a lot of elders, a lot of people who went to residential school are just living with that trauma. So to see somebody make up a story about it, it's it's just horrifying. It's like lying about any kind of trauma. It, it feels like it's taking something sacred from people. And I, I wanted to include that because I think the human element is really important. I think it's important to realize that people are really being hurt by this. They're being hurt personally. Um, and it's not just a professional issue. It's, it's really a, a human one. It's, you know, it's stealing people's stories and histories for profit. And that's so wrong that I think we need to look at it directly. I think we need to confront that aspect of it, too.
0: After the article came out or around that time period, that's when this faculty member uh, did resign her position. Has there been any apology or statement of remorse for the pain this situation has caused
1: to others? No there hasn't uh so I'll to clarify the timeline a little bit this story was published online on September 6th um and Gina Adams resigned from the university on August 25th so two weeks before the story came out um but McLean's Magazine contacted the university in early August for fact-checking, which is the part of the publication process where you give you know, everybody who's named in the story is, in a significant way an opportunity to see the information that's gonna be published, to make any corrections, um, to review the facts essentially. Because for a story like this, it's so important to make sure those details are correct. Um, we wanted to tell the story with as much integrity and as much honesty as possible. So the fact checker from McLean's, uh, Ali Ahmad, he reached out to the university uh, in August with a list of questions. And in there, he included some of the details that we'd found uh, in our investigation of Gina Adams. And a few weeks after that, she resigned. So I don't have knowledge of what happened at the university after we sent that email, but I imagine it opened up some of these conversations. Um, And ultimately, she chose to leave. And the university, for whatever reason, waited until after the story was published to share that information with the community. So after the story was published, um, on September sixth, Emily Carr released their statement later that afternoon. And I was pretty disappointed when I read it, because it mentioned that Adams had resigned. Um, It said that the university stood behind their hiring process. And it didn't really say anything else about the intervening period or their responsibility after these allegations were raised to look into them. Um, It didn't acknowledge the harm that had been done to Indigenous members of the community. It didn't acknowledge any errors on their part at all. And I really felt like and and often feel like in these cases when when somebody resigns who's been called out for this kind of fraud the resignation is taken as resolution you know that person is gone and the case is closed and i really don't ascribe to that because the the person who commits fraud is one actor in a much bigger system and what i'm really concerned about are the institutional forces at play here, the ones that, you know, that bring these people into the community, that hire them, that give them these positions of authority, and then the institutional forces that protect them from suspicion and shield them and lend them credibility, often for years when there are very serious questions about whether or not they're truthful. And I think that's the real problem we have to solve. I think, you know, extracting frauds one at a time through these incredibly laborious and detailed investigations is not a real strategy. It's not possible to do it uh, over and over. And it has to come from within the institution, like the institution has to take responsibility for their actions and for change. And one thing that stood out to me when I was reporting this story, um, I spoke to an artist who had encountered Gene Adams and raised some questions and concerns about her. And she told me, you know, I just don't understand why it's so difficult for institutions to admit they made a mistake and just apologize like it shouldn't be so difficult for a university to say, you know what, we, we trusted this person, we believe them and we are wrong and we're sorry. I, I don't understand why that never happens. And You know, I think that reconciliation is a big topic here in Canada. Um, it's, It's a big topic everywhere, I think. How do we reconcile the past? How do we make amends for the harms that have been done to Indigenous communities? And reconciliation can't come from ignoring mistakes or trying to paper over them. It has to come from acknowledging them and understanding what went wrong so that you don't make the same mistake in the future. So to answer your question, there hasn't been an apology. There hasn't really been a public statement acknowledging that harm. And I think that's what I'm most disappointed about. And
0: there hasn't been a statement about how they'll avoid repetition. If they can't acknowledge what they've done or how they got here, they can't assure anyone it, it won't be replicated.
1: Yeah, so they have said they said in their initial statement that they'll be convening some kind of advisory committee, um, but there were no real <clears throat> specifics on that. So you know, no real statement about what the advisory committee would do or how it would be assembled, um, no timeline, and. You know, I think often as well, when a big mistake like this is made at a university, the first response is we're going to set up an advisory committee. And, you know, I think review and reflection is important. We shouldn't rush these processes. But I'm often skeptical when I see that as a first response, because to me, it feels like a way of postponing any. Meaningful action, right? It's just a way of saying, you know, in the next two years, we're going to convene some people to think about this. Maybe they'll make some recommendations, and hopefully by then, people will have forgotten. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think that most universities in Canada now, and hopefully in the U.S., are moving away from self-identification because they really recognize the flaws in the process. But it's not clear to me that they've considered a better system. So another university in Canada that was embroiled in one of these scandals is the University of Saskatchewan. Um, And last year they had a very prominent faculty member and health researcher named Carrie Barasa, who was revealed to have fabricated a lot of her indigenous identity. Um, And well, I would say, I guess, it seems like she's fabricated all of her indigenous identity and she was eventually pressured to resign. And that university, was really in the public eye with this story and did commit to undergoing a review and implementing a new verification process, but they have chosen to base their verification process on that federal ID. So requiring people to present a status card or uh, another piece of ID confirming their indigenous identity. And as I said, that's, that's also a pretty, flawed system. It's not a system that's rooted in understanding or learning. It's kind of just replacing one checkbox with another. So at this point, I haven't seen a really great system or process for change from any university. And I think that we can't expect meaningful changes or improvements until that happens. I think that until there's some kind of Kind of sector-wide understanding and learning, and meaningful change. Uh, we're going to keep seeing these cases of identity fraud again and again.
0: You said one of the things that's really important to you is this: this article not being misunderstood as a call for suspicion, and to empower people to require others to prove. Their identity. You shared experiences of being younger and people doing a social version of that to you. Um, what would you like this article to inspire people to do? And
1: what was your what was your hope when you wrote it? I had two hopes when I wrote it. So one one was to reach other members of the indigenous community, many of whom are within these universities, um, either as students or staff or faculty, and really validate their experiences. Because when I was working on the story and even before when I would talk to other indigenous people, everybody really understood what I was saying and had similar stories, you know, of feeling like their identities were misunderstood, of feeling like there was no process to raise concerns if they had doubts about a colleague's identity, um, we're really seeing, we're all seeing the same things in our in our institutions, which is quite distressing. And I think so many Indigenous people were just frustrated by the process of trying to make leadership understand why this issue was so important and why there had to be action on it. So I really wrote the piece for them, for the Indigenous people who spoke to me for the story, who trusted me with their experiences, and who were often just in these incredibly difficult situations where they were reliant on an institution for their education or employment. And yet they felt like there was this elephant in the room that no one was addressing, which was, you know, a possible case of identity fraud. And the other goal that I had was for non-Indigenous people to come away, hopefully with a more nuanced understanding of what Indigenous identity is and how to talk about it a little bit. You know, I think we're, we're in this cultural moment where people are really attuned to and aware of the need for, um, for racial justice, for, for justice for indigenous communities, for reparations and reconciliation. And that's really important, but often it's it comes with this tremendous amount of discomfort where people are really afraid of asking questions or saying the wrong thing. So you end up with a situation where people will, you know, want to hire indigenous people or welcome indigenous people into a community, but they don't, they, they kind of want to do it almost at arm's length. They don't want to risk making a mistake or saying the wrong thing. So it's, you know, we're, we're really seeing kind of the, the drawbacks to that where the the efforts to engage with indigenous communities that have been kind of vague and universal have resulted in these pretty predictable problems and mistakes. And I think that people who want to be allies to the indigenous communities, um, whether that's the communities, you know, that are in their immediate area, the lands that they live on, the host nations, um, or the urban communities that are really diverse, that make up our cities and and have people from many different nations. If you want to be an ally and if you want to support those Indigenous people, it requires understanding who they are and what their community connections are and why those matter. You know, it can't be done in this vague, impersonal way. It has to be done with understanding. And so I, I don't want people to be too afraid of asking anyone questions about where they come from, or, you know, who they are, because they, they think it's offensive. I I think it's often more hurtful to Indigenous people to be treated as this kind of homogenous, monolithic group, when there are just so many differences between different nations and people from different regions of North America. There's incredible diversity. And when we all get lumped together as Indigenous people, it doesn't actually do us a lot of favors, Um, you know, particularly when there's so many differences between the experience of a mixed race, urban Indigenous person like me and somebody who's from a reservation, um, who's visibly Indigenous, who probably experiences racism in their daily life because of their appearance, um, who may face really specific economic barriers or geographic barriers to things like education and health. You know, I think we need some nuance um, when we talk about engaging with indigenous communities and we need people to learn. So that's a long answer, but I, I'm hoping that people come away from the story with a better understanding of who indigenous people are and, and begin to take more of an interest in who they are beyond thinking of them as just a general group that needs help.
0: One thing I like to ask all my guests at the end is what they hope their episode will spark for listeners. So what do you hope we talked about what you hope that, that article will do. What do you hope
1: this episode will do? Well, I would love if people who are at universities that are struggling with this issue, whether publicly or privately, Um, the issue of identity fraud, or of, um, you know, Indigenous members of the community feeling like they can't speak up safely about their concerns. I hope that people bring their concerns to leadership. And, you know, it's, I think we all know that universities do respond to pressure, public pressure, pressure from their community members. And we'll only see traction on this issue if universities are kind of forced in a way to respond to it. Um, so I would love to see more non-Indigenous people acting as allies by supporting their Indigenous colleagues, by calling out issues of identity fraud if they're happening within their university, um, by bringing their concerns to leadership and by trying to create truly safe spaces for Indigenous students and faculty, by you know, ensuring that their identities are protected and respected there. Um, both within the walls of the institution and outside of it.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Michelle Sisa, and telling us about your article in the Claims Magazine and what's been happening since it came out. I hope you'll come back and speak with us again. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.